Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from Trinity United Methodist Church of Loveland, Colorado. We are located at 801 North Cleveland Avenue and worship every Sunday at 10 a.m. We'd love to have you join us in person. For additional information, please go to our website, www.tumc-loveland.org. Now, may you be blessed and inspired by the Holy Spirit as you hear this word. For the reading of today's scripture, now we pray. Gracious God, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Today's passages are from John 8, 1 through 11. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. While the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Got about 10 folks joining us online, so down a little bit this week, but smaller group of folks has a lot of concerns for us. So first, uh, we have greetings from Brian and Pat Walls and from the Kramer family in Aurora. Prayer request-wise, we have one from Pat Jones. She says, good morning. I have a dead battery in my car or else I would be with you. And she asks for prayers for John, who's in the hospital in Washington with a bleeding ulcer. And I'm trying to find the other one. From Wendy Yates, she asks for prayers for her friend's dad, whose cancer has returned and the prognosis is not good. So thank you, online folks, for sharing that. And we lift up your joys and concerns along with our own. And we just know that God is going to act on it like God always does. So um, I was reading an article about the National Football League draft last week. For those who are unfamiliar, and there may be some of them out there, The NFL draft is where professional teams select college players to fill out their team roster for the upcoming season. It's coming up here soon, the draft, and goodness, preparing for it is a rigorous process. That's what this article was all about. It detailed how potential draft picks have to undergo physical examinations, psychological evals, strength tests, and speed drills. Then it talked about how teams strategize their draft, 
how they examine each potential player and map out all their picks from round one through seven. There is so much strategy and forethought involved. Except when it comes to the very last pick of the draft. It's a throwaway selection. So the player that's taken with it is given a nickname to reflect their supposed lack of importance. Let's see who's tuned into the NFL world. Who here knows what that nickname is by chance? Well, you're going to learn something today. The last player drafted into the NFL every year is known as Mr. Irrelevant. Mr. Irrelevant. Despite what the title might communicate, it's actually kind of an honor to be chosen last. Every year, Mr. Irrelevant gets a lavish banquet thrown in their honor and a free trip to Disneyland and other prizes. They also get a very unique trophy. If you follow college football, you know that the best player in college football every year gets the Heisman Trophy. Well, Mr. Irrelevant gets the Lowe'sman Trophies. So you can hear the joke they tried to do there. Hi, low. Now, this label doesn't end up reflecting reality. Most Mr. Irrelevants go on and have fairly decent NFL careers. But then again, does every Mr. Irrelevant play in the NFL? I think we would know what it's like to be Mr. Irrelevant. Has anyone here been picked last to join an activity? In elementary, oh, I'm seeing some people. In elementary school, you were the last choice for dodgeball. Or at work, you were the final person assigned to a team working on that giant project. No one wants to be the real life Mr. or Mrs. Irrelevant, do they? Because there's no honor or recognition involved. The world treats you exactly as the nickname suggests. You are considered small, unimportant, and unworthy. And it's far from the only label that's out there, isn't it? Let's get personal for a bit. What labels have you acquired over the years? Let's start growing up when you were growing up? Did people call you pretty, smart, or handsome? In school, you were popular, fashionable, or athletic? Or maybe you weren't part of the in crowd, so people labeled you as nerdy, overweight, ugly, or unpopular. I heard those ones a fair bit, so you know which crowd I ran with. If you got those labels, what did they do to you? They affected you. They shaped you. They transformed you. They defined how you thought of yourself. Labels have that sort of power. They cause us to believe that what they say about us is true. And it's not like they stop when we become adults. They may not be as prevalent, but I think the labels we get in our later years become broader and heavier to bear. 
I don't know about you, but I hear the term failure thrown around a lot lately. We, we meet weekly in our union small groups, the millennials do, and I often will sit with people who feel like they're failing because they're in their jobs, their marriages, and their families. Another prominent label I see all the time is sick or unhealthy. I mean, we're an older group here at Trinity Church, and when one of our faith family ends up in the hospital, as a couple of our beloved people did last week, that label descends upon them. And it is so hard to shake off. I don't know what your particular labels are, folks. All I know is that we have them, and the bigger and nastier they are, the more they tend to affect our lives. We often encounter them by this point in the Lenten season because we are really getting deep into introspection. We are trying to clear out our souls with Christ. And as we've learned in this sermon series, those imperfections become a lot more apparent right now. We're comparing the Lenten journey to, or the Lenten season to a journey with Jesus. And when you're traveling so close to the light of the world as we are attempting to do, that light can't help but reveal some imperfections. Sometimes we're able to give up those smaller burdens to Christ and continue on in the journey. It's a small speed bump for us. Yet other times it's not nearly as simple. We have done something so bad, or the label that's been revealed in us is so awful, that we start to believe it is who we are. The emotions of labels like this are just like quicksand. You might be feeling great, but it stops that emotion dead in its track. It sucks it down. Your faith journey just halts right there. I find it ironic in a way. These labels and factors that so often that arise from our past and things we've done before, when they're exposed, they clamp down and they begin affecting our future traje trajectory. Yeah, labels are hard things, especially when they're negative. I know so many people who have wrestled with these huge life-defining mistakes and labels. Several of them have sat here in the pews of this church or been on our live stream. Not just in this time frame. I mean, our church has sat on this corner for 70 years now. So can you imagine the number of people who've come here on a Sunday morning to wrestle with their shortcomings? They hear the sermon and they ask themselves, can I reach out again despite how bad I failed? Or can I forgive that person who labeled me and put me in this state? I bet this question has been asked thousands of times, if not more, in this very room. Somebody has come in here and silently cried out to God, God, can you love me even though I'm a... Then they insert their label or sin there. People might be saying it now. 
We have so many labels attached to us this morning. So many sins. God does not want them to hold us up on this Lenten journey, though. So the divine takes action. God's response comes to us in two forms. The initial part of the answer in our reading from John 8. Now, this is an interesting story because it doesn't appear in the earliest biblical manuscripts, which leads some scholars to believe that it was added later. Yet, Jesus' tone is so similar here and is his approach in keeping with the greater themes of the Gospel of John that most scholars feel this is authentic, that this story was a memory added later on to the text by somebody who was not John, but who was there witnessing this occurrence. It's one many of us know. As the story opens, Jesus is teaching in the temple courtyards when he's rudely interrupted by a group of religious experts, the scribes and the Pharisees, as we often know them. With them is a woman that they have caught in the act of adultery. And that is a hard label right there, an adulterer. It is such a weighty term that even now, 2,000 years later, that's all we know about this person. The text doesn't even mention this woman's name. So we've got a powerful label at work here. And if you're thinking this scene, this accusation isn't quite adding up, there's something going on here, you're right. Adultery involves at least two people, right? And according to other parts of the Bible, like Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22, when adultery happens, the parties involved should face judgment together. Yet only the woman is present in front of Jesus. Where's the guy? Why aren't the authorities out searching for him? Both participants need to be there for a judgment to be made. And why approach Jesus in the first place? He's not a recognized local judge. These religious experts are. They should be taking on the case. Even if Jesus wanted to give a verdict, he couldn't, because judging only the woman would violate the law. And he couldn't call for the death penalty because only the Romans could administer that. Plus, if Jesus deferred and said, oh, give this up to the Romans, it's their job, he'd look like an imperial stooge. Talk about a no-win scenario, right? It absolutely is. Verse 6 makes it clear for us. This whole situation is a trap. The experts have built this legal box around Jesus, so whatever he might say, he loses. All the while, they're leveraging this woman and her label, the pain that causes. It's just so insidious. They use the pain of another to form a trap for someone else. Jesus, however, is not fooled. Straightening up, he looks at the religious experts and he speaks the famous line. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. This is a brilliant rhetorical move right here. He knew he was in the box and he totally 
took the way out. After saying this, nobody in the crowd is thinking about the woman and her label. Instead, they're realizing how treacherous their leaders are. And more importantly, they're seeing their own labels in Jesus' light. The revelation, this knowledge that they're just as worse or just as bad as this person in front of them, it causes the accusers to drop their stones and walk away. It leaves the startled woman standing face to face with Jesus. The remaining crowd has to wonder, what's going to happen now? Will Jesus say something like, you are guilty, but boy, did you get lucky. I can't do anything with you. Will he reinforce, reinforce her adulterous status to make sure that the crowd shames her now and forevermore? Jesus could do that. Instead, he simply asks her, where are your accusers? Did any one of them condemn you? No, Lord, the woman says. So Jesus replies, neither do I. Go and sin no more. With that short reply, Jesus peels away this woman's label. It's gone. It's forgiven. She gets another chance. It's far from the only label that Jesus throws away in his earthly ministry. And it gives us one of the answers to our plight today. God's grace is timeless, which means that the offer Jesus makes to this woman is valid for us. It tells us no matter what you've done, no matter your label, Jesus Christ tells you, I don't condemn you. You are more than this. Go and sin no more. Put simply, God sees you for who you are and who you can be. And if you want it today, that love can set you free. So that's the first thing to remember about labels. Jesus is ready to remove yours right now. But please don't think it's going to release you from all future names and titles. Here's the second part of the answer to today's question. Jesus has a right to label you. He has every bit of authority in the world to do so. You might wonder why that's the case. I mean, if other people have no right to label you, if the world has no right to name you, why should God have that authority? Well, let's consider this question in a broader sense because we'll seek some ways to answer it. What gives someone the right to label something? What gives them the right? Well, if you put on a bit of clothing this morning, which I hope you all did, you already know a bit of the answer. Because when we slip on a shirt or a pair of pants, they have what in them? Sometimes it drives us crazy on our back because it's so, ah, it just drives you nuts. It's a label. And whose name is on that label? The manufacturer or the clothing company. That's the first condition that gives you the right to label. When you create something, you get to name it. And that name sticks. 
Others can't change it. I can't go over to Henry's Pub on 4th Street afterwards for lunch today and demand that they change the name of their restaurant or look at their menu and say, these dishes need a new name. I don't have that sort of power. The owner does. Now, the restaurant's owners could sell that right. They can give it to somebody else if they want. Because you get the right to label when you pay a price to purchase something. Many of us have examples of this that'll greet you when you get home today. You've got a dog, a cat, a bird, or a fish, or a lizard, or whatever it was at the pet store. And because you paid that price, because you bought them, you gained the ability to name them. Lastly, we give leaders the ability to name us. When we agree to follow somebody, we let them assign us into the roles we should play in a group. They order us with labels to make the most effective team possible. If you've ever worked in a company or on a large staff, you've gone through this. The boss determines the title. They'll give you a name like administrative assistant, shift manager, or a general employee. It all marks you in the giant order of things. I hope you see where I'm going with this, folks. God does all these things for us. God creates us and knows us by name, as Isaiah 43 says. Christ redeems us on the cross, purchasing us with his blood, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And the Spirit leads us. The Spirit organizes. The Spirit is our boss. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 12. The Holy Spirit organizes us through the gifts and graces we are given to use in divine service. So many labels can come from these three avenues. And because they come from God, we know they're all true. What's more, God stands ready to reveal one for you today. Just like Jesus is ready to rip off the old, Jesus is ready to apply the new. Think about it. What label would God apply if you asked? Would God say that you are healed, beloved, talented, prized, Beautiful, holy, precious, or amazing? God might say any of those things. Usually that condition we bring to God, the bad label, we get the opposite of bad. I know one label we will all receive today, and every day if we want it, and that is forgiven. We are forgiven. Christ's journey during Lent continually reminds us of this, that we are not defined by any label others would give us. We are not Mr. or Mrs. Irrelevant. Instead, you are whoever God made you to be, and you have the opportunity to live fully into that as we go towards Easter. All we need to do that is what Jesus says. Go and sin no more.
Drop your rocks, drop the labels, and live life fully in Jesus' name. Amen.